Our scripture reading today is from the end of Luke chapter 21, well not really the end, starting in verse 5 through to the end. And uh, <clears throat> I'm not going to read the whole thing as we stand for the reading, I'll read simply through verse 19 now and then we'll continue to read as we go through the passage. Would you stand for the reading of God's Word? This is Luke chapter 21, beginning in verse 5. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. When you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place. But the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. But not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. The grass withers, the flowers fade, and yet the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. And so if you're if you haven't been here, we've been in the book of Luke for uh, almost two years now, maybe more than two years now, and as we approach the end of it, it seemed appropriate to, uh, to see how, rather than leaving Luke, the end of Luke behind and heading to uh, maybe more stable-like uh, settings for Advent, it seemed appropriate to see how, how does Advent... And these last teachings of Jesus, how do those go together? How do we, how do we celebrate Advent even, in, even with these teachings of Jesus's? And in one sense, the easy connection is uh, that Advent simply means coming. And so it's very easy to say, well, it's, it's silly or at least half, it's a halfway celebration to celebrate the first advent of Jesus, the first coming of Jesus, without recognizing the second coming 
of Jesus. And in fact, we'll close today's service with a very misunderstood uh, and yet very popular hymn or carol, uh, Joy to the World. Uh, we seem to relegate that song only to Advent and Christmas time when that song is based upon actually Psalm 98, which was uh, part of that was our call to worship. And that Psalm was actually a celebration of the second coming of Jesus. Joy to the world, the Lord has come, let earth receive her king. Is not talking about the first very quiet coming of our Savior, but the second very not missable, if I can make up a word this early in the sermon, uh, coming of Jesus. And so as we look through this, uh, we see that this is the last teaching that Jesus will enter into in the temple. He's been in the temple all this week, going in, teaching things, uh, meeting with adversaries, answering questions, uh, and then retreating to uh, Mount Olivet to sleep for the night, coming back again. After this, uh, we will enter into uh, Thursday. Uh, the next passage is the Thursday before the Friday of the death of Jesus. But that's where we are. We are in that last week of Jesus' life here on earth. These particular teachings are recorded for us by Matthew and Mark and Luke. Uh, so they seem to be important about Jesus' explanation and even prediction of the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. But more importantly, His explanation of the second coming of Christ. A lot of scholars differ on whether these passages have only to do with the very immediate future or if Jesus is teaching on both the immediate future, but also more than the immediate future. And I think it's helpful to at least remember, at least through Luke, when people ask Jesus questions, he rarely limits his answer to the specific question they've asked. But Jesus almost always, if he answers that question that they are voicing, he adds to that answer questions they should be asking, answers to questions they should be asking. And I, I believe that that's what's happening here, that Jesus goes beyond the original question and He answers other questions concerning the near future of the disciples, but also of the far future of the return of the Son of Man, the return of the Christ, His second coming. Now, within that, He will answer their questions. But whether Jesus is speaking of things future, or I'm sorry, whether it's Jesus that's speaking of the future, or it's Paul speaking about the future, or John writing about the future, in all of these cases, it is never, or at least it never comes across to me as they're telling us these things so that we can have a more accurate daytimer, so that we can make sure that we've nailed down and figured out just when is this going to happen. 
but in all of Scripture that speaks of the coming future of the return of Christ or of the coming judgment of God, it is always with a twofold focus, and it never has to do with us getting our daytimers right. It is always written so that those who believe, those who are followers of Christ, those who are children of God, will be encouraged. There are hard things coming, but be encouraged. And then the second purpose is that those who do not follow Christ, those who are not believers, those who are not children of God, would be warned. Take heed. These things are coming. Therefore, repent and believe and be delivered. This whole conversation starts because as they're in the temple or exiting the temple, a conversation arises among some of the people around Jesus about the beauty and grandeur of the temple. This is Herod's temple, Herod the Great, who uh, reigned uh, from about 37 to 4 B.C. He had this huge uh, building and renovation project for the temple. And to say that it was huge is really an understatement. Uh, there was a proverb at the time that said, If you, he who has not seen the temple of Herod has never seen a beautiful building in his life. That would be, by the way, guys, as you're thinking about anniversary and Valentine cards, like, just write that. I mean, you have to change that. He who has not seen your beauty has never seen a beautiful woman in his life. Seems a bit hyperbolic, but ladies dig hyperbole. But here is... um, the temple, the rebuild of the temple, if you can understand, like you can figure some of these things out, uh, 172,000 square yards the rebuilt temple covered. On the western wall, even today, you can see some of the foundation stones, some of the cornerstones. And I've, Amy and I have seen this particular stone. It is no exaggeration. It is 10 feet tall. This one stone is 10 feet tall. It is 10 feet deep, and it is 45 feet long. This is one stone in the temple that Herod rebuilt, and there are other stones that were larger than that. And then inside, just so many surfaces covered in gold. It was was a wonder to see this temple. It would be a rare person who could go to the temple and not come away marveling at its grandeur and its beauty. But as we have seen, Jesus is a rare person. And he hears them talking and he says, As for these things that you see, The days will come when there will not be left on here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And so something that unimaginable, something that changing, that life changing has got to be apocalyptic. Like nothing like that would happen without it being the end, not just of an era, but it's got to be the end of time. 
There's no way this temple gets destroyed and it's not the end of the world. And so they ask, teacher, when will these things be? But also not just when will these things be. If this is the end of the world, what will be the sign that these things are about to take place? But Jesus isn't talking about the end of the world. Jesus is talking about the end of the world as we know it, or as they know it. And there is a difference. But in that moment, it doesn't always feel like there's a difference. Especially when it's going to include the end of some people's worlds. Hurricane Katrina likely felt like the end of the world to families who faced that devastation in towns and areas that still have not recovered from that. 9-11 had this feel of the end of the world. The fall of Rome felt to many like it was the end of the world, like this was the sign that judgment was coming. Cataclysmic events that felt to many who lived through them as though it was the end of the world, or at least the end of the world had begun. Imagine if you lived in Louisiana and someone 35 years ahead of time, someone whom you trusted, someone who was reliable, not just some person making things up, but someone who had a pretty good source told you in 35 years this is going to happen. Like you would, it would feel even more like it's the end of the world, that someone would be able to predict this with that kind of accuracy. And so Jesus, before answering their questions, he answers some questions they ought to have. Before preparing for the end of the world, or even for the end of the world as you know it, there are other things that you ought to be preparing for. And so he says, so first of all, be prepared for deception and false teachers. In verses 8 and 9, he says, listen, many will come in my name. Isn't it sad? That sentence alone, that half sentence alone tells us this deception, they'll come in my name. This means that the deception will come from inside God's people. It won't come from the outside. It will come from people coming in my name, claiming to speak for me, or worse, claiming to be me. I am He. Or the time is at hand. He says, do not go after them. Now, we today, we can say, well, obviously, someone comes today and says, hey, I'm Jesus. We hope that we're all smart enough. That we're going to be like, I don't, I don't think you are. I'm not going to follow you. But he also adds, or they might just say, the time is at hand. They might just come and tell you, I've figured it out. I've nailed it down. I've discerned the end. And the time is coming. 
How much confusion in the church could be alleviated if we just followed this instruction from Jesus? When someone says to you, I've got it all figured out, the time is at hand, don't follow them. Don't listen to them. Don't believe them. Wars, troubles, disasters, these things must take place, Jesus says. The the world is broken. These aren't signs of the end. These are signs of a broken, fallen world that is crying out like a woman in labor to be delivered, to be redeemed. The world is broken. It's not a sign of the end. It's a sign that we still need deliverance. His first instruction is you need to be discerning, first of all. But then he goes on and he says, You need to be prepared for persecution in verses 10 to 19. And again, he says, listen, there's going to be wars. Nations are going to rise against nations. Kingdoms are going to rise against kingdoms. There's not just going to be war. There's going to be disaster. There will be earthquakes. There will be famine. There will be pestilence. There will be terrors from heaven. But before any of these things happen, there will be persecution. Before any of these things even occur, you, my disciples, will be persecuted. You'll be mistreated. You'll be arrested. You'll be put in prison. You'll stand trial before kings and governors. And all for the simple truth that you believe in my name. All of this will happen for my name's sake. They will treat you like this because of me. He says, this is, a, this is an opportunity. You will be mistreated horribly for my name's sake, and it will be an opportunity for you to bear witness. Literally, it says it'll be an opportunity for you to be a witness. And witness in Greek is the very word that we get for martyr. You yourself, in your life, standing before them, will be a witness to me, to my name. He says, you won't, even, you won't need to even prepare for trial. I, I will give you. There's provision, not just an opportunity, but he'll provide for you during that opportunity. I'll give, your, give you a mouth and wisdom. Again, if you're listening closely to Jesus' words, this is yet one more place where he claims to be God. That Jesus, who will be nowhere near you physically, he will give you the words and the wisdom to speak when you are on trial. He himself will give them to you. It won't just be because you'll be inspired by his words. In fact, Jesus was silent on his trial. But He Himself will give you the words and wisdom as only God could do. And as if it couldn't get worse, it's not just leaders and those out there who will betray you, but you'll be persecuted and mistreated by parents, by siblings, by relatives and friends. They will turn on you. And He says some of you will even be put to death. You will be hated for my name's sake. 
And then he says what seems a little contradictory. Many of you will be put to death, but not a hair on your head will perish. You will be killed, and not a hair on your head will perish. Which is a little, I think you may have misspoke Jesus. And it's, it's this promise of preservation. So he's not just going to provide when you face these times, but he will preserve you. Even though you die, you will not die. They may kill you, but you will not perish. You will not die because you are mine. And my life is your life. You will live even in There is a physical resurrection even being alluded to here. Not a hair on your head will perish. So some of you were hoping that in the resurrection, like they say, we get these new and perfected bodies, improved bodies, and you might have thought that might mean that you're going to get a better head of hair. And uh, this seems to indicate you might not. You, You might... Jesus might be happy with the hair you have, or don't. (laughs) And so what does he say? His his instruction here. If his instruction in the first is be discerning, don't be deceived. His instruction here is, and so endure. Endure. This world is hard. This world is broken. There are people who are going to hate you just because you call on my name. Endure. Endurance, the the word throughout the New Testament is hupo or hypomeno, remain under. It really carries more of a survive than a overcome. Now, in Romans 8, there's definitely the whole, you know, you are more than conquerors. There he uses the hooper or hyper. You are a hyper conqueror. But when they talk about endurance, it's a hoopo, stay under, just remain under. This life is very hard. Just, you know, you don't have to seek to be the rock star. Just Endure, and I'll deliver you. So be prepared for persecution. Third, he says, be prepared for judgment. And we'll go ahead and read now this next section in verses 20 to 24. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by enemies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant or for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people." They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. 
So in this, Jesus does not ignore their original question. When is this going to happen? He does come back and talk about Jerusalem and the temple. Now, if, you are even, if you're only slightly familiar with the history of 70 AD and the siege of Jerusalem, it might sound strange that he's saying, don't try to get back in. Everyone who's inside, get out. You don't really get out of a siege. Like, in fact, uh, there's pretty uh, accurate historical record of everyone who did try to leave was crucified and then hung so that everyone in the city could see it. But the process began really in 66 A.D., that there was a, a revolt, and so the emperor sent Vespasian, who is Titus's father. This is so unimportant, but uh, anyway, he came in in the spring of 67, to put down the revolt. And so then by the end of 67, all of northern Palestine was under Roman control again. And in 68, Vespasian established a ring of military outposts that surrounded Jerusalem. There was a military that surrounded Jerusalem. And Jesus is saying, you want a sign that this is coming when you look up and see Jerusalem surrounded by armies? That would be a good time to leave. Get out. Flee. Get away from it. The reason everything went on hold is because in 68, the emperor, Nero, died. And so there was a little upheaval in the political system of Rome and what's going to happen. And eventually, Vespasian returns to Rome and becomes the emperor. And so he sends his son Titus to finish what he began. And so weeks before Passover, in 70 AD, at a time when Jerusalem would be filled with visitors, Titus established a siege around Jerusalem that lasted for five months. Everyone who tried to escape was either crucified within sight of the city or else maimed bodily and sent back into the city in order to terrify the residents. Eventually, he seized full control, burned down the temple, and killed whatever survivors remained. And Jesus says this about these days. These are days of vengeance to fulfill what was written. Great distress upon the earth. Earth and land are the same word in the Greek. So it could be that Jesus is simply saying great distress will be upon the land and wrath against this people. Just like Assyria in the northern kingdoms of Israel were used by God, this wicked nation used by God for the punishment of His people's sins. Just like Babylon was used by God in the southern nation of Judah and prophesied 
that this is coming because of your faithlessness, because of your wickedness. Here in two different places, Jesus says these are days of vengeance in order to fulfill what was written. And this is wrath against this people. And so the instruction Jesus gives in here is flee. Flee. Flee the wrath to come. Now let me ask you a question. How does one flee the wrath of God? It's one thing to flee the wrath of Rome or the wrath of of Titus or Vespasian, but how does one flee the wrath of God And the reality is you flee the wrath of God by running directly to God. Because there is nowhere on earth, Psalm 139, which makes it sound like a wonderful thing, says there's nowhere you can go. There is nowhere you can go that God is not already there and following close behind you all at the same time. If you want to flee the wrath of God, you run directly into his arms and cry for mercy. God says, judgment is coming, and so flee. Fourth, he says, be prepared for deliverance. Verses 25 to 28. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and of the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Jesus, in essence, is saying far more important than the fall and destruction of this city and this temple is the return of the Son of Man. Yes, this will be the end of the world as you know it, if you live in Jerusalem, but there's a more important thing for you to consider, the end of the world. And there will be signs of the coming end, signs in the sun and moon and stars. These aren't just signs of wars and rumors of wars. These aren't just earthquakes, but there will be actual signs in the heavens. There will be distress and panic among the nations over what happens to the sea. There will be fainting and fear and dread of what is happening. And then the Son of Man will come in a cloud with great power and glory. Again, it is a reference to the deity of Christ, that He is God Himself, the Son of God, equal with God. He is God. He is coming in the cloud with power and glory. When is the last time God came in a cloud of power and glory, but at Mount Sinai, and then even delivering and leading His people, the Shekinah glory, the cloud by day, the fire by night, leading His people out of slavery and bondage? 
This is why Jesus can say, this is coming, it's going to be awful, and when it comes, lift your heads, stand up straight, your redemption is here. When Christ comes, it won't just be this precursor of, oh, maybe something nice will happen again in 2,500 years. When Christ returns, it will be for your salvation. When these things happen, as, as horrific as they'll be, stand up straight, Look up. Your redemption is here. Be prepared for deliverance. The instruction is simple. Don't fear the end. And then finally, he speaks just of preparedness itself. Be prepared to be prepared. He speaks of readiness. First in a parable. So he told them a parable, look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out of, in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things take place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves. Lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. The parable is very straightforward. When you see the leaves come out on the trees, you know that summer is close. Like it's not a, it's not, you don't need, you don't need graphs and charts. You see the leaves and you're like, oh, look, summer. He says, that's the same with these things. When you see these things, you're not going to need graphs and charts. You're not going to need someone saying to you, oh, I think this is, no. When I come in the cloud in glory, the whole earth will see it. You will know. Summer is here. Your deliverance is here. What is it that he means when he says, Truly, I tell you, this generation will not pass away until everything has taken place. We were talking in, in Sunday school today about this. Like, what does this mean, this generation? Because there's only three possibilities. Either we're completely mistaken that this is all about something that happened a long time ago. Or... Maybe we don't understand what he means by this generation when he says that. Now, one thing to help us with this generation is to realize that all throughout Luke, when Jesus says this generation, he says it negatively. When he speaks of this generation, he's speaking of an unbelieving people. Luke 7, to what shall I compare the people of this generation. What are they like? Luke 9. Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long should I be with you? And Luke 11, in verse 29 and 30 and 31 and 32, he says, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given. In Luke eleven fifty one, 51, he says, From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Now, that's 
odd. He, how could possibly a people living within a 20 to 30 years time span be held accountable for the death of Abel and the death of Zechariah that happened quite a while ago? This generation means more than this generation or means different than this generation. When Jesus says this generation will not pass away, he's saying in one sense, he's preparing you and me to know like it's, it's not going to get rosy before he comes. This generation, there will be a generation of unbelief always on the earth until Christ returns. I tell you, Truly, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And so the instruction, the instruction in this last section, so watch yourselves. First of all, don't be weighed down with with drunkenness. Don't look to just escape the hardships of this world through mind-numbing activities, through escape Don't be weighed down with the cares of this life. Don't be overwhelmed either with all that's taking place here. But stay awake and pray for strength. It goes right back to the endurance without saying endurance. Just endure. I promise I'll be back. So if you have an Advent wreath at home, today's the pink candle. It's the, it's the candle of joy. It's the joy of the coming of Christ. So if you didn't know that, the sermon hasn't been odd. If you did know that, you're probably thinking, so where's the joy in this passage? I'm not not feeling the joy. And yet it's all throughout the passage. Like you are, if you are one of God's children, Jesus wins. There's a member here who is probably just watching today or listening today, and he's he's a very diehard football fan of a particular team and cannot, cannot find out the score before he's watched the game. Like, he keeps the games... He records the games if he can't watch them live and like practically puts his phone in the freezer if the game is going on and he hasn't watched it. Like he can't, he can't, he doesn't want to know how it's going to turn out. He wants to experience it the whole way along. I am a Cleveland Browns fan. I wouldn't mind if I didn't get to see any game until the whole season was over. Because then I know how many games I should even watch. Then I can know. I, I need to know, am I, 
investing my time wisely in this game, or is this just going to be another frustrating Sunday? And even when I do watch them live, I'll go upstairs from the basement and tell Amy, like, hey, it's third quarter. Or I'll say, hey, Cleveland's winning. And she'll say, oh, what quarter is it? I'll say, it's the start of the fourth quarter. She always says the same thing. Oh, there's still time. (laughs) And it would be less frustrating if she wasn't right 95% of the time. The point of the end of the book, the point of eschatology, the point of end times predictions and explanations is so that you as a follower of Christ can be reminded he wins. He won. That Christ wasn't exaggerating on the cross when with one of his last breaths said, it is finished. It is finished. Where is the joy? It's in Jesus' instructions. When these things do come, straighten up. Lift up your heads. Your redemption is near. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. Paul reminds us, who? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? Distress? Persecution? Famine? Nakedness? Danger? Sword? All of these things are in this passage that Jesus is talking about. Every single one of these. Paul says, no, it's been written for your sake. We're being killed all day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. We are hyper-conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure, I am sure that neither death nor life, not angels or rulers, not things present or things to come, and we might add, or any of the things in your past, Not powers, not height, not depth, not anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is great joy in being reminded of that. Let's pray. Jesus, this world is broken and suffering And we are broken sinners suffering in this broken, suffering world. But we are redeemed. We have been bought with a price. Christ has claimed us as His own and as your own, Father. And all whom you have entrusted to Jesus, He will never lose. Help us to endure. Help us to persevere. Give us wisdom and discernment to avoid the false teachings that so often come up every time something new difficult happens. God, I pray that we would flee your wrath, but flee into your arms. 
I pray for anyone who are not your children, that they would flee the vengeance and wrath that is due them and flee to you in the name of Jesus and receive His righteousness, His death, that you might give them the power to become your children. In Jesus' name, amen.